Who's Bekistan? Where's Bekistan? Why's Bekistan? How's Bekistan? Beck is in Uzbekistan. What's going good and what's going bad? As she's live from Tashkent, Uzbekistan, in the heart of Central Asia. Okay, here we are <clears throat> with episode 11 from season 3. So, uh, this episode is a little bit different. I have a request from my most ardent listener, and we kind of got it going the opposite. Instead of, what am I excited by, puzzled by, and how long do I plan to stay, is, what are other people excited about, puzzled by? So, uh, it doesn't exactly fit that format, but you know what, let's don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Okay. So, some questions I've got about living here in Tashkent is, how does Uzbekistan feel compared to other countries I've traveled to? So, before living here, I had traveled to 20 countries between 2015 and 2018-19, if we count Puerto Rico. And then, prior to that, the, the significant international travel I'd done was, was pretty minimal, I'd done a high school trip to Europe. I'd been to Costa Rica once. I'd been to Canada a couple of times. So the the big traveling started in 2015 when I moved to Asia for the first time. Okay, so one very stark point is there's a difference between living in Uzbekistan and living in Tashkent and living in downtown Tashkent, where I live. So if we're talking about central Tashkent, what does it look like? So, Tashkent was, is a Russian city. It was made by the Russians. It was not historically on the Silk Road. It was intentionally built to be the capital, as compared to, like, Samarkand and Bukhara and Hiva that are the historical cities here that were historically on the Silk Road. So, in 1966, there was a massive earthquake in Tashkent, And they rebuilt the city on the other side of town. So there's kind of the old part of the town and the new part of the town divided in half loosely by the canal. So the old part of the city, I've only ever been over there a couple times because there's not really a reason for me to go. Um, There was a museum I went to over there, and while I was over there, did see Chorsu Market, which is the most notable market here. And maybe I was like on a group outing to some kind of restaurant over there. It's just one of those things, there's just no reason for me to go there. So, so I live on the, quote, new part of the city that was built very quickly in 1966. At that time, it was part of the Soviet Union, and whoever was the leader of the Soviet Union then, I don't know if that still would have been Stalin or not. I don't think so. But, um, but the leader of the Soviet Union at the time brought in labor from the other Soviet republics to come quickly build back Tashkent, and they did. Um, uh, there is a statistic similar to, like, the World War II statistic from the United States about... It was the goal to build so many airplanes, and they, like, 
um, exponentially built more airplanes. It was a similar thing here that they had estimated it at so many years, but did it in a fraction of the time. So when all those people from the different republics came here to be uh, migrant laborers, a lot of them, once they got here, realized it's a pretty nice place to live in terms of climate compared to where many of them were from. So um, that's, that's how some historical lineage happens of who ended up here. It is definitely a mix of different, different branches of who would have been in the Soviet Union. Obviously, the dominant ethnic group here are the ethnic Uzbeks, but, but there are a lot of Tatars, um, people of other Ukrainian and Russian, and like I said, other Tajik, other, you know, other, other ethnicities that run through the region. So, what does it look like? So, if you look at the map on Google Maps, it was built like a spider web. So, it's these big, long boulevards that culminate in the center that is a mirror-to-mirror square. So, um, that's the center point of the city. Um, otherwise known as about a, I don't know, 20 or 25 minute walk from my house. One, sub one subway stop up. So, um, so, yeah, these big boulevards branch off of it. So, it's not, it's not exactly like a grid. It's not exactly like a spider web. But there are big, long, parallel boulevards with connectors. So it is very, very easy to navigate. People who have lived in Russia say that the streets are built like Russian streets. People who live in Moscow say that the metro here looks like the Moscow metro. So, if I ever go to Russia, I will be very prepared for what it looks like. So yeah, a lot of like big, like four lane in each direction, um, huge, I call them boulevards, and it's very pedestrian-friendly, and the areas that are not pedestrian-friendly, people walk anyway. Um, that's why I have to have very good shoes here to be prepared to tromp through a construction site at any point. Um, also notable about the streets is along each side, there are these um, concrete culverts that don't have any grading over them. And so, if you're driving here, you have to be very careful not to, you know, drive off the side of the road. More to the point, as a pedestrian like myself, have to be careful not to step in the hole. Because they're not marked, and it's, it's everywhere. Um, so, that's a common warning for new people here, is watch your step very carefully and don't fall in the hole. Most of us have fallen in a hole at some point, including myself. Um... The buildings here are not big skyscrapers. They are building a bunch of those, so there's cranes all over town, and there are a few high-rise buildings, but mainly what it is is these low-rise apartment buildings that are maybe like between three and six floors tall is kind of the standard Uzbek apartment block. And then what they call them Soviet-style buildings are some taller towers that are apartments that that may be more like, I don't know, maybe more like 15 floors, and that would have an elevator. But, like I said, big, big new apartment buildings being built all the time. The city is absolutely um, under construction. 
So as you walk down the street, there's storefronts that line all the streets. So little markets and other shopping and that kind of that kind of thing. Um, um, they call it magazine is the word for it here, or like we would call a bodega or a convenience store. Or you know, there's pretty much one on every corner. In addition to other things, there are not big grocery stores in the way we have in the West. They're more like city markets um, that can can vary. You know, some of them are nicer than others. So um, that's a little bit about what it looks like. What do the people dress like? So when I'm on the metro, it's, you know, it's mostly people going to work in general, Uzbek people here, particular, well, I guess Uzbek men, tend to wear black a lot, like black pants and a white shirt and a black coat. Um, but now some of that can be influenced what they need by what they need to wear to work. Um, they do. There are yes, they blue jeans are a thing here, um, but 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 standard black, black pants are probably a little more common if we're looking at working-class people. Um, elderly people here do dress traditionally. The men, not all of them, but some of them wear, uh, there's another, I guess there's another name for it, but it's some kind of variation on a skull cap that look like a box that's, you know, very traditional looking. Like, little old grandmas may or may not have a scarf tied on their head that's like colorful, like a bright purple scarf or something. But it's tied around their head. Like you can see their ears, you can see their hair hanging out the back of it. So it's not like they're fully covered. They do dress very conservatively. Um, as for standard Uzbek women, they were, they're very nice dressers. A lot of them wear makeup every day, are very coiffed, have very frilly, girly, lacy clothing. Um, a lot nicer than I would normally ever wear. Although I do tend to dress nicer here probably than, well, it depends on where I'm going. But um, yes, um, a loose estimate is about maybe a third of the women um, cover their hair here. Um, yes, there's, there's, uh, there's, I mean, because it's a major city, I mean, there's, well, because it's a, the capital, there is a range. So, you know, I might see like a young, advantageous local girl, maybe or maybe not Uzbek, maybe something more of Russian background, maybe who's lived internationally or traveled internationally, would maybe wear, like, shorts and a tank top. But that would be sort of an outlier. Um, the the main part of the bell-shaped curve would be either, you know, pants or a skirt and, you know, some kind of blouse that's pretty concealing. Um, Uzbek, yeah, u- u- just in general, Uzbeks do not wear shorts I've, I've not been here in July when it's the hottest. I don't. They may put some on then. I'm not. I'm not sure. But Caucasian people and international people here do wear shorts, as do I, um, when it's hot. So the ethnic Uzbek people 
they it they are Asian. They're Central Asian. So I wouldn't say that they look like Japanese or or Chinese or Vietnamese people, but they are noticeably Asian looking. As in most of them have black hair. Particularly the men have very tiny little frames. So um yeah, the Uzbek they're just a tiny 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 little people. Um are they friendly on the street? Yes. Um, you know, when it's cold and I look down the street and see people walking along, we're all bundled up in our coats. I mean, it just looks straight out of a movie of what you would think, you know, Moscow looks like when it's cold, which can be a little bit like harsh looking, but, but that's just because it's cold and we're wearing our heavy coats. I have an Uzbek coat. It's this big puffy copper thing that goes down to the middle of my shins, um, which is the common common coat that women wear here. Black combat boots for women are a wardrobe necessity because you want something that will match nicer clothes, but but it's but it's got to be really durable for you know sloshing through. Um, you know, slush and, and construction sites and, and whatever else. So, um, it's a little bit about the good good footwear here is very important. And and having a good coat. So, are the people friendly? Yes. Um, and and there, there is an, an emphasis here on being friendly and welcoming to foreigners. You know, luckily it's rare, but it does happen that, you know, sometimes I will have some kind of problem with the taxi can't find me. And I will have to shove my phone in the local person's ear and say, Kecharasas, Minga Yordam Karak, Yandex, Kayerda, which is, excuse me, I need help, where is the taxi? And they're, they're, they're you know, they're very, very eager and, and willing to get on the phone and give the driver some more specific directions. Um, the shop owners, most of the shop owners in my neighborhood know who I am and you know, get very affectionately greeted. If even if even if we can't have a substantive conversation, there there at least is a very friendly greeting. They're very into drinking tea, um, as a as a show of of hospitality and and being friendly and welcoming. They're very good about helping each well helping each other and whoever needs it. For example, if there's a car stalled, like. You know, a couple guys, because it is so pedestrian-based. There's pe- there's people everywhere all around. I'm rarely alone. Um, you know, if there's like a, a stalled car, like, you know, very quickly a man or two or three will appear and not only push the car to the intersection, but if they're close enough to a repair station, will try to push it on to the repair station I've not seen a tow truck here. I've been told that they exist. But now I have seen a tow strap where they just latch the car to another one and and trot it down the road to a repair shop. Because really, because, I mean, the roads are, the city is flat as a pancake. So the roads are long and flat and straight. So, you know, I can kind of see how that could be a little easier in this setting than if you were having to you know, make a bunch of turns. Um, Traffic is bumper-to-bumper, relentless, 24-7. So, I mean, there's just just cars everywhere you look. 
There's no place to park them. I mean, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's it's four lanes in both directions, back-to-back between stoplights. Um, very interesting ways to make a left-hand turn here. They just all pile up in the intersection and then go, they go to, they do it collaboratively. They go together. So, like, in the West, we would say, um, make sure it's clear, you know, only go if you can see for yourself that it's clear. They don't do that. They say, if it's clear for you, it's clear for me, and then they all go together. Uh, they bounce back and forth out of lanes. They have trouble manipulating a stick shift. and can't get into the gear. That's why I prefer when I get somebody with a manual. Um, they drive, Chevrolet has a monopoly here. There are other cars here, but it's mostly these little white Chevrolets that are different variations than we've seen in the West, like a Chevy Spark, and there's some other, other names. They're just these tiny, tiny little tin cans. They look like you could almost just push them over. And some little vans also here that are just these very tiny little things. Okay, so that's a little bit. I think there was one final question about the systemized health, uh, about the healthcare system here. So there are three grades of care here. There's the local clinic, and I think they're like, I think there's like some standard free things there. You know, there's it's by neighborhood. You go to the clinic according to your address. And I don't even know where mine is. But the, the first year here, I knew where it was because I had to go up there for some paperwork for school. Um, but, yeah. So, I mean, the, the ladies that worked in there were nice. But when you look at the building, it does look like some straight-up, scary, 1950s, concrete, horror movie building and the nurses wear these, like, big cone hats um, that are just very noticeable. So, um, yeah, and I, I guess then some, like, some standard services are free there. I think if you start needing something more complicated, then there is payment requested. If you need, like, a why I had to go there was I had to get a note for school because I was out sick. Um, so that's the only, only the local clinic can give, like, a formal sick note. Like, a regular clinic can't. Now, the local clinic will write the sick note based on recommendations of a private clinic. But it was this colossal pain, and I, I hope I never have to fool with it again. Like, you don't just go in there and get it. Like, you, you have to make multiple trips. Like, you go and request it. And then they say, how long do you want the file open? And then you have to come back and get it a few days later, but maybe the woman's not there. Uh, it was, I mean, I think I ended up having to make like five trips. So that's kind of the local clinic. Then there is the next tier of care is the private clinic, which seemed to be fairly plentiful. I had to go to one of those once my first year. It was approximately $12 to see the doctor and you can come back for 30 days free related to that same issue, which I thought was a grand idea. Hint, hint, insurance companies and your $80 specialist co-pays in the U.S. for one freaking visit. Um, and then another $80 for follow-up. Yeah, that's the, that's the 
teacher's health care plan where I'm from, $80 to see a specialist. Um, so, yeah, so $12 and you get follow-ups for 30 days. I had to get my blood drawn. That was an additional $12. Um, I would say that clinic is probably one of the more reputable ones. And like anything, it kind of varied in quality. I mean, I, I think I was treated, you know, appropriately there. But, like, somebody else has some, like, serious life-threatening allergies, was needing, like, an EpiPen. And, like, they were just like, oh, allergies don't exist. What are you talking about? So, wide, wide variation there. And, like, even though there's an appointment, the times don't mean anything. You just kind of have to show up and wait. And, um... What was the other notable thing about it? Oh, even though they, quote, put the word international in the clinic, I mean, like, the only kid who could speak any English there was the receptionist whose eyes were bugging out of his head trying to help me. God bless his, God bless his heart. And then another time, like, he was at lunch, and the doctor had to, um, I mean, we just had to get on the Google Translate. But, um, yeah, so that would be sort of the private clinic. And then the highest level of care here is the international clinic, the real international clinic. They don't see local people at all. You have to have a foreign passport to go there. Um, it's a scale, but for your garden variety visit, it's, it's basically $50 a pop. They don't take local currency or local bank cards. You have to pay in U.S. dollars. They, you can buy medications from them. They're shipped in from Germany. They're, they're pretty expensive, but, but it is... But it is Western-grade quality. Um, I've had to go there a couple times um, for various issues. And I would say that I got, you know, a very high level of care. The doctor spends a very long time with you. They are real MDs. You know, there's none of this PA crap like we have in the West. So they are bona fide MDs. I think a couple of them are internal medicine, and then a couple of them are GPs. Then I think that they've got a dentist also. I think they've got an OBGYN, a physical therapist. Um, then beyond that, they just have doctors on their call list for different, um, different specialties. And you don't have to go. Like when I needed the eye doctor... I just called. I'm like, yeah, I'm having this eye thing. They're like, we don't have an ophthalmologist. I'm like, I know. Who do you recommend? And then they just they just have a list of who they refer people out to. Um, uh, yeah, so, so yeah, so they, they're really a hub. Um, they do have, like, would know how to get someone evacuated. They're, they're kind of a triage. If someone needed to be evacuated, they would know how to arrange that. So, um. It's open sort of clinic hours, but they do have some 24-hour hotline numbers. So, but, but yeah, we're, but we're certainly getting much more expensive there. But, you know, you kind of get what you pay for. Um, so, anyway, so that's, that's a little bit about that. I'm trying to think if there's anything notable about being in the city. Yeah, so to end where I began, so I'm describing downtown Tashkent to you. It's... I, I call it one mile by three miles. It may be less than that, but that's what I approximate it, and that's my little world. And if when I've had to go beyond those parameters, it changes very, very dramatically. And then it just becomes nothing but just apartment block after apartment block, you know, with like a couple little markets, a little guy selling psalms on the side of the road, a couple little shops. I mean, just... 
for as far as the eye can see, nothing I would ever need or, or you know, I just don't really have, yeah, I just don't really have a need for them. So that's, that's kind of the outline areas of Tashkent. Then, and, and it, it just, yeah, it, it becomes very, very poor and undeveloped very, very quickly. Um, you know, as you roll out of town, like to go to the mountains, I mean, it just starts to look very barren. Uh, it is the desert here. The mountains are not green and lush. They're brown, and then the, the upper peaks stay snow-capped year-round. So, um, I mean, then it's just all these little villages, you know, where there's just, you know, there's just, it's just nothing. Just very, very rural, very undeveloped. So, a lot of quick, stark, fast changes. And then, you know, here in Tashkent, flat as a pancake desert, you know, drive out the highway, you know, like 60 kilometers and then you're in the mountains, and it takes about an hour and 15 minutes total to get to the ski resort. So, um, yeah, and then you're at very, very high elevations, like I said, with year-round snow-capped mountains. So. Um, so, yeah, so those are some questions that my viewers were excited about and puzzled about, and um, happy to share that with people. So I am excited to share this glorious city with people, and I am puzzled by some of its ways at some point, but um, joyfully rolling toward the end of year three. I've got a couple more weeks for third quarter, and then we'll be gearing up for the fourth quarter to wind up a very, very, very fast year three. Whoever you are, wherever you are, Thank you for listening. If there's anyone else out there listening has any further requests, say the word.